So we're going to spend most of our time in chapter 32 this week, but before we do, a couple supplements from last week. Um, I mentioned a few things, or a few things came up last week that uh, I thought it may or may not be helpful to, to run back over again, and this will, all, this will also give us kind of a warm-up this morning. Um, I don't always know what we're going to end up talking about each week, because I only have sort of a loose idea of how this is going to go. You know, I, for better or for worse, I try to do this as, as much as possible with few notes. And uh, what that means is that sometimes when we're through, I think, oh, well, I wish we had spent more time on this, or I wish we had, you know, if I had known we were going to cover this, I would have prepared more, you know, with this area. But last week we mentioned uh, that there's a place in, in Egypt where there's a whole bunch of fallen idols, and the Coptic Christians say that this, that the, all of these idols fell down when... Um, when uh, refugee Jesus came through, right, as a, as a baby with the Holy Family. And I, I found some pictures of this place to pass around. Um, this place is called, uh, I'm not sure I, if I have the pronunciation right, it's Tel, Tel Basta or Tal Basta. Basta was um, the cat god for Egypt. Um, I don't know how many of y'all saw the Black Panther movie when it came out, but the you know the god of, of that you know made up civilization is is Bast or Bast. Uh, it's based off this Egyptian goddess. And it's just right outside of the main part now. Well, that's how a lot of these ancient places are. They're very careful about which angle they they take pictures of the pyramids in because there's a hotel right next to it. No. So it looks like it's out in the middle of nowhere, but it's really not. It's really this is, I mean, it's just, it's just how it is. I mean, modern civilization built on top of ancient, so. Yeah, but this used to be, um, this used to be the site of, uh, you know, it was a place of worship for this, for this cat goddess. And Does it all have carvings in it that you can touch? You mm-hmm. can't tell like that. It just looks like a bunch Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, you know how they, they carved on their rocks and, you know, had all the, yeah, yeah. So anyway, the, the story, as the Coptics tell it, is that, you know, they, this fell when Jesus came through. I mean, the idols fell at his presence. I mean, this, they see this as a direct fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecies that the idols of Egypt will fall at the presence of God. You know, as, as modern Westerners, we don't, you know, what, what do we make of this? I mean, we don't, we don't know. It is what it is. But I thought I would pass it around since it came up last week. Yeah, I guess so. I heard a story many years ago, a testimony from a missionary, a missionary in Asia or someplace like that. And uh, they had a Christmas tree up with the Holy Family and Jesus yeah. and that. And the housekeeper wanted to put some of her idols around the Christmas tree also. And she did these idols. And then the next day is that they came in or whatever to celebrate Christmas or whatever they came into the room. The other gods had fallen over and were worshiping the, uh, the land. Make I think what you will. <laughs> These things do happen. Um, all things made by man. Yeah. 
<laughs> given enough time. Yeah. Uh, something else that came up last week uh, that I mentioned that I wasn't I wasn't planning to discuss was that uh, we had a real life parable of the warning in Isaiah about uh, going down to Rahab and about how if you go down to Rahab uh, by by idolizing you end up becoming that which you seek to go after and then your destruction happens so suddenly in an instant it's like an explosion or an implosion and I said that we had a real life parable of that with that submersible that uh, you know imploded in the ocean recently as that you know it was it was a uh, it was it was named after the uh, the Titanic, which <laughs> has the same meaning in its name as Rahab. It means large one or giant one, and uh, that basically you know this obsession with with uh, uh, this this monument of pride, they end up becoming that which they you end up becoming that which you look at. Give it enough time, um, you're molded into the image of 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 that which you pay attention to. Now I sort of threw that out last week and then after the fact I was reading some articles and it turns out that I'm not the only person saying that um, here's a, an article from uh, I think this is from Newsweek from a couple weeks ago so some of these expert um, expert divers that use these submarines were they had been saying for years that this company was bypassing a lot of uh, safety issues and ignoring warnings you know just like just like just like how uh, Israel is ignoring these warnings against you know aligning yourself with Egypt it's it's it was it was hubris was directly tied to the uh, the death of these the tragic death of these people right and so I have here a quote um, from uh, James Cameron of all people didn't he direct the movie Titanic? Yeah. The collective we didn't re remember the lesson of Titanic. These guys at Ocean Gate didn't because the arrogance and the hubris that sent the ship to its doom is exactly the same thing that sent those people in that sub to their fate. So I feel a little vindicated in bringing that up as a parable because it actually, it is a real life parable of the warning about you will become that which you pay attention to given enough time. Uh, you, you, that's how worship works. Worship is just attention at the end of the day, and you're molded into the shape of what you pay attention to. So, um, let's see what else from last week. Was there anything else that we talked about that we should cover from last week? This We're going to talk about the fear of the Lord today. That's going to come up in this chapter, chapter 32. All right, let's go to, let's go backwards a little bit to 31.8, and then that'll give us some momentum to jump into 32. And the Assyrian shall fall by a sword, not of man, and a sword, not of man, shall devour him. And he shall flee from the sword, and his young men shall be put to forced labor. His rock shall pass away in terror, and his officers desert the standard in public, declares the Lord, whose fire is in Zion, and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. Now we 
we briefly hit on this at the end of last week, but I think it's worth paying a little closer attention to. And again, this will give us some momentum for jumping into chapter 32. And the Assyrian shall fall by a sword, not of man. So Assyria itself has been sort of the sword of God against a lot of these nations as sort of the left hand of judgment of God. It's the instrument that God uses to exercise judgment on a lot of these kingdoms. In, I believe, chapter 19, God clearly called Assyria the work of his hands, right? It's his instrument of judgment. But here, it says Assyria itself shall come against a judgment not of man. So he's not going to use another nation to take out Assyria. This is going to be God himself. Now, uh, the sword not of man shall devour him. This is a sword that has to do with a mouth it's a devouring sword, right? And that's not just a metaphor because we see throughout Scripture that there is a sword that comes out of God's mouth, right? So this is not just a throwaway verb just to make like, you know, a, a, a punchline. This is something very significant in Scripture, the devouring sword. Um, some of y'all may have seen that booklet that I've put out there in the hallway uh, called Icon. Uh, this has sort of been this uh, this little pet obsession of mine is tracking the priesthood in Scripture and trying to really understand it because I think that uh, that priesthood is what it means to be made in God's image. And I think what it means to be made in God's image is the big question of our time. So I think the way that we approach Scriptures at this point in modern Western history is directly tied to what does it mean to be human. You know, this is the question that we're all trying to figure out. It's what matters to us today, right? And I think priesthood is is a big part of that answer. The catalyst that I used for talking about this stuff in that booklet was Genesis 3.24, right? And I sort of used this as a springboard to talk about these things because it has to do with um, Adam's priesthood, but it's priesthood in exile, right? As he's kicked out of the garden. And what happens is that it's a flaming sword that guards the way to paradise. question is, what is that flaming sword? Um, the conclusion that I come to in that booklet, and I discuss it at length, the conclusion that I come to is that the flaming sword, consistent with what you see in Revelation, is, is Christ himself, the Word of God. Right? You see that there is a sword that comes out of the mouth of Christ in Revelation. I go through all of this in the booklet, but it is only through Christ that you can enter back into paradise, yeah? So if there's a flaming sword guarding paradise, right, that has to be Christ. Now, fire is always in Scripture a mark of God's presence. Always. So we have a flaming sword guarding the entrance to paradise. That's got to be Christ. It has to be Christ. The Assyrian shall fall by a sword, a devouring sword that's associated by fire here in this verse, declares the Lord whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. So this is the flaming sword of Genesis 3.24. This is Christ in judgment, is what this is. Right. Yeah, I was going to say, you mentioned not of a man. It says not of a mighty man. Which, to me, makes it sound like Jesus Christ. Yeah, right, right. Uh, Jesus Christ deliberately came as a helpless child, did not take any yeah. of the power you know, that he could have. You know, like that. So, 
Now this. So you're, you're saying it does seem like that's representative of Jesus, though, right? Yes. Oh, very much so. Yeah. Yeah. The devouring sword in yeah. Scripture yeah. is is is. So it's it's the a, spoken word of Christ, yeah, which a, di- which divides and pierces the heart, yeah, and a, it cuts through the wheat and the chaff and splits them apart. Yeah. That, that's what the word of God does. Right, so, not of a mean man, which mean I guess means uh, average, not of an average, right? Yes. One word shall slay him. That's right. Yeah. Um, What else can we say about that? Anything else? Yes. Very famous verse, Hebrews 4 12. Yeah. The word of God is quick and powerful, sharp and even two edged sword, piercing even to the light and sunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And also, one more. I think it's like six words in Hebrews 12 29. For our God is a yeah. There are very few things about describing God that are that clear where it says God is. I mean, we know that God is love. We know, you know, there's a few things that it says, but our God is a consuming fire. I mean, when I, I take that very seriously, and I, I think that mm-hmm. that fire is throughout scripture a symbol of God's presence Um, now that can be either the fire of Pentecost or the fire of hell but it is fire nonetheless Well, that's what the Word of God does. It either judges or it purifies. Only by passing through the Word, which is Christ, can you enter the tree of life. That's Genesis 3.24 right there. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, there's there's a mystery here to this with the flaming sword, which is that as we walk with Christ and as we become more and more like Him, what we end up doing is we end up taking up the sword and bearing it ourselves. Right now, first we're first we're pierced by it; it it, it, it kills us. Right, but as we are crucified with Christ and we no longer live, it's Christ who lives in us. In order to enter the tree of life, we end up taking that flaming sword ourselves and bearing the word of God. Right, now that's. There you go. These symbols are not arbitrary. It's consistent throughout Scripture. The sword, which is the Word of God. Right. Right. Which is the Word of God. Yes, this is exactly what we're saying. All right, so... This is sort of the, the, the destiny of mankind, is to take up this sword, right, and to, and to be a reigning priest with God in the holy place. Now, we come... We're, Adam goes out... Uh, uh, exiled wearing you know sackcloth and ashes but he comes back to paradise you know brandishing the sword of God right so this this is the transformation of what it means to be molded into Christ's image 
So now we're going to see that here in chapter 32. What, Behold. Yeah, one thing real quick, though, yeah. is, is that you also see where the enemy will take up the word of God in a warped way. Sure. Receive those who belong to God. You know, so, he, he, you know, so, so he, he understands, the devil understands the power of the word of God. And so he wants to try to spin it, change it. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice. So who are those princes? We know who the king is. I hope we know who the king is. Who are the princes? And they will reign with him forever. This is the... This is the this is the, uh, the, the, the destiny or the telos of Adam to reign with Christ in glory, to rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm. Before, earlier in Isaiah, and I believe it was in chapter 4, it talked about how God himself is the shelter from the storm and the rain. Now it says that each of God's people will be a little shelter themselves. They're like, a, they're like a microcosm or like a small version. They're little Christs is what they are. The, you know, the Christian is a little Christ. This is what it means to be, this is why I, I called that booklet Icon. It's that that's what an icon is. It's a little version you know, to, to facilitate the worship experience between you and God. As the world encounters you, they're encountering God through you in this little, this little scaled down version of Christ in you. Like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. Then the eyes of those who see will not be closed, and the ears of those who hear will give attention. Um, I mean, I'll go ahead and read the Septuagint version of verse 2. Um, a man will hide his words and be hidden as from flowing water, and he will appear in Zion as a glorious river flowing in a thirsty land. So you have this image here of a, of a Christian being, being a little spring of life, a little water of life, right? Just as Christ himself is the, you know, the, the, the stream of life that never runs out, so too the Christian, in as much as he's conformed to the image of Christ, is, is a little version of that, it's a, little, a little stream of life. Out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water. Yes, yes. Out of your belly, and I love that image. Yeah. Yeah. And that's both in the New Testament and in the Old. Yeah. That's quoted that way. You know, I'd like to point you that I heard this morning about Jesus, Jesus that I listened to, the Jew that was converted to He said, You have ears, they're physical, but he said, You know, when God speaks, he said, You're not really listening with your ears. It's the Spirit that He's given us understanding. He was making the physical difference and the rivers of water in Spirit of God, it's not the pleasure of works that we have. 
So Christ throughout the New Testament, especially when he's giving the parables, he'll say this weird thing, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. And he says this repeatedly. Now, um, the parables are like the entire book of Isaiah in condensed form. You have a parable of the kingdom, like the sowing of the seed. That's the whole book of Isaiah, just in compressed, in seed-like form. Right, so then Christ says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. He's not just saying, some of you are going to get this and some of you aren't. He's saying, this is the time when people will finally be able to hear. When, when Isaiah is being fulfilled, this is the time. It's like in, uh, oh, which gospel is it? I want to say Matthew, where he reads the scroll of Isaiah and he says, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Right? The, the kingdom of the, the, the Isaiah's prophecies are made manifest now in the life of Christ. Right? And so when he says, hear who has an ear to hear, let him hear, he's actually, he's actually quoting this. Then they'll be able to hear. Then their ears will be unstopped. Right? It's also a reference to Isaiah 6, by the way, which we keep coming back to when God told Isaiah, they're not going to hear what you're saying. They're not going to understand. Well, you know, Walter told a lot of Anything else before we read the next section? The heart of the hasty will understand and know, and the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. That should call to mind Moses. The fool will no more be called noble, nor the scoundrel said to be honorable. For the fool speaks folly, and his heart is busy with iniquity. To practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord. To leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied, and to deprive the thirsty of drink. As for the scoundrel, his devices are evil. He plans wicked schemes to ruin the poor with lying words, even when the plea of the needy is right. But he who is noble plans noble things, and on noble things he stands. So there you see this word noble coming up again and again. Um, there, there's a direct assault on um, the reputation of Christianity going on in the modern age, right? Where to be a Christian is is a thing of ridicule and a thing of um, a thing of shame. But here we see that walking with God is a thing of nobility, and it's a thing of high purpose. And we don't often think of it that way. There's the priesthood. It's a noble and high calling to be a priest of God. Right. Plus, you're right to think about today all this sort of foolish talk that's going on, and it's based completely and totally in lies. Yeah, well, and what's going to do that? It's going to be the dividing sword. It's going to be the word of God that pierces and divides. That's, yeah. yeah, I think that's the struggle that all of us have is to speak the word of God 
and perhaps to someone who would actually listen to what you're saying. I mean, I, I find this tough out in the world to find people who would actually listen, you know. Mm -hmm. it's, it, it's kind of a struggle. <laughs> but sometimes people do. <laughs> there's so many, there's so many other voices out there. Oh, I know it. I know it. I mean, people's heads are just full of I, I know multiple it. voices. Oh, that's good for you. Yeah, I saw a devotion from the Institute for Creation Research one or two days ago. Spoke of uh, it said uh, it talked about to some it's joy to hear what you but to some they reacted, and then the some is just yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah, like that. So that's it's it. interesting you say that. Because that was just two days ago. Wanting to see the fields ripe for harvest, and we are really seeing it. They brought that out Sunday morning. Fields ripe for harvest days. Such a word for us now. Yeah. Well, I think it's not today's not so much that people hate God. No. They're indifferent. They're totally indifferent to Him. So, which is worse almost than hate. Yeah, you're you're queuing us up for this next section coming up with uh, yeah, yeah with Well, I, I just want to say that this is not just about speaking the word of God; it's about living the word of God. He who is noble plans noble things, so it has to do with the whole of their life and how you know just how they how they live out their daily life. On noble things, he stands. That's not necessarily. I mean, it, it includes what you say, but it's not just words. No, no, no. It's just being in the presence of Christ is 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 a scandal enough and is dividing enough, right? So 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 I work in a very in a very dark place, um, and and I don't have to go around preaching the word to people, just just. Everybody. Them being around me is yeah. enough of, I mean... Everybody already knows. The <laughs> fact that, look, the fact that Angela packs my lunch for me is a witness. Look, that's how, you know, that's how... When you're in a dark place, it doesn't take much light to, to shine. Well, it really guys, doesn't. Those guys in prison, and probably most of the deputies, have never heard of such a thing in their life. As a, a woman as a, would, would pack a lunch for them. Yeah, it, it's <laughs> actions. I, I truly believe that actions are, are, are where, are where oh, faith man. is. I mean, you can, you can... I work with people who can say all day long that they're Christians, but what... what it's... it's uh, faith without works is dead. Yes. It's not faith without words. It's faith without works. That's right. Because the devil, a handshake was enough. But that's the only You could trust that this person is going to back up the things that you And that's a rare thing to run into these days, it seems like. Trust someone that once they shake their hand, you know it's going to get done. That's why we have contracts. I want to draw a contrast between this section and what we read in the very first chapter of Isaiah. We're going to come back to the first chapter of Isaiah a couple times probably this week. In chapter 1, verses 21 through 23, we had sort of a summary statement of just how messed up the city of Jerusalem had become. 
how the faithful city has become a whore. He, she who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes, there's the nobility right there. That's, that's who we're supposed to be. But they're just rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Right, so contrast that with this vision now of the heart of the hasty will understand and know. The fool will continue to speak folly, but he who is noble plans noble things, and on noble things he stands. So you see this transformation starting to take place, right? There's still evil in the world. This is the church age. There's still evil in the world. The fool will still be the fool. The wicked will still be the wicked. But now there are people shining the light of Christ just by the way they live their life. So, All right, rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice, you complacent daughters. Give ear to my speech. In little more than a year, you will shudder, you complacent women. For the grape harvest fails, the fruit harvest will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Shudder, you complacent ones. Strip and make yourselves bare and tie sackcloth around your waist. We'll stop there for now. All right. Complacency. This word shows up repeatedly. It's a real problem here with Isaiah as he's, he's speaking out against the complacency of these women. Uh, first of all, who are these women? This is the uh, sort of the, the, the feminine aristocracy. These are the, the, the wealthy women, of the, the wealthy nobility of the time. It's important to remember that Isaiah... Most of Isaiah's prophecies are not given to the poor or to the masses. Isaiah was, uh, he was a relative of the nobility, so most of his prophecies are to the nobility. For instance, we had a prophecy against Shebna and for Eliakim, like this is all within like the royal household. All right, so now he's talking specifically to uh, the rich and powerful of the time, the aristocracy. And he says they're complacent. So what does that mean? They're happy, they're satisfied. If you look at the Greek or the uh, the Hebrew word, it's not necessarily a negative word. It's something like trusting. You you trusting women. The question is, what are they trusting? Right. That's the question. Um, they are they are too at ease by putting their trust in the wrong thing, um, and that has given them a kind of complacency. Now I'm going to. I'm going to extrapolate and say that this has to do with us today in the church age because um, this is not the first time Isaiah has talked about these women. And earlier in Isaiah, he, talked, he called them the daughters of Jerusalem. All right, now we know that we are the new Israel, right? So we, we are the fulfillment of uh, the city Jerusalem and by extension, her daughters. So when it talks about daughters of Jerusalem, right, we should take note of what's being said there because it probably has to do with us. Yeah, there you go. And um, and our besetting sin here in the West is complacency in, in, in the language of the old monks it's, uh, it's called acedia. So you have these, uh, the deadly sins, right? 
lust, gluttony, anger, on and on it goes. Sloth is one, but sloth is kind of a, that's not what they meant. They didn't mean, they didn't mean just tiredness. It's a kind of spiritual depression. And that, that, is, that is our besetting sin in the West. And so Walton has said before that Laodicea is, is that's us. We're the church of Laodicea. Well, what, what was wrong with Laodicea? They were too content. So. They were too complacent. They were lukewarm. A lot of prosperity. They were they were in the in the sleep of Asidia, as the desert as the desert monks would say. Um, so, you know, when we read this stuff, we can take it one of two ways. We can either put ourselves seemingly in the place of Christ and, and pass judgment on you know the the Pharisaical tendencies of these people, or we can say, well, this is us. This is we, you know, this is our struggle too. You know, we are in the West. We struggle with complacency. That is our besetting sin, by and large. It's not the besetting sin of every single individual, but um, as as the if you can call you know the Western Church a particular like thing, then this is what we struggle with. So this is a warning for us. It's a call to repentance. Tie sackcloth around your waist, Isaiah says. Talk to me. The New Testament says uh, they will be lovers of pleasure and lovers of disciples. Kind of sounds like Yeah. That. Yeah. I, I think cynicism, too, is sort of a, it leads into complacency. You know, because we, we're, we are very cynical about everything. You know, just uh, life in general. Way it is. Yeah, I know, fella. He said he always tells you, says, "Follow the money, Greg. On every issue, follow the money." Yeah. And I don't believe that's true. Well, it's a kind of it's a kind of uh, nihilism. Yeah. yeah, or, or like the sort of nothing matters mentality. Yeah. Well, that's what a CDA is. That's that's exactly what it is. Uh, and the, the the monks talk a lot about this because they really struggled with it. Uh, they called it the <laughs> they called it the noonday demon because their houses, their little, their little huts didn't have roofs, these <laughs> desert monks. And the sun was right above them at noontime. <laughs> and, and they haven't eaten all day, and it's hot out. It sounds like, uh, what was it, Thomas of Beckett would wear a human hair shirt to keep himself uncomfortable. Yeah. Wow. So they called the city of the noonday demon because this is when they this is when they struggled with it the most. So they're standing there directly under the sun and they're hungry because they haven't eaten all day because their meal time's not till dinner. And so they're thinking, man, I just want to go back to the city. Why am I doing this? Exactly. Yeah. None of this matters. This is all meaningless. That's well, acedia. All right. So they're contending with this demon every day. Um, all right. So we can take a page out of their book and see how they fought it and and. The answer with how to fight acedia is you you uh, you hold on to the spiritual disciplines like a lifeline. That's how you beat it. So there's a uh, there's a great modern-ish, probably about 30, 40 years old now, book from a woman named uh, Kathleen Norris uh, who has quite a few books. She's, yeah. she's great, but she has one called Acedia and Me. Yeah, and it's where she uh, it's basically similar to Augustine's her spiritual autobiography, uh, her coming out of the spiritual darkness. 
It's a great book. I recommend it. I thought the ascetics were they took away from themselves and suffered on purpose. But you're saying it's the word is complacency. Like okay, two different words. Ascetic ah. versus uh, we're t this is a different word. Ascedia is a is a is a type of vice. Ascetic is uh, those who like it, it, monks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a different word. Yeah, that's a different word. Ascetic is A S C E T I C. Ascedia is A C E D. A C E D. Yeah. Yeah. Two completely different words. Ascedia is it not A C E yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. that's a CDA. Or two C's, maybe. Yeah, it's just it's a coincidence that they happen to sound similar. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I kind of thought that might be the case. Yeah. The more I heard. Um. Well, the church really, in some ways, maybe other than the first century, has always been complacency. It seems like I'm I'm reading a book from the 1959, and that seems to be a major issue of what amongst What time was this written? 1959. That's that's not that far away from no. now. No, it's, it's not. No, but, it's but, not. But, but that was the, the big issue there was the Cold War. And yeah. The fact that we were going to be killed by nuclear weapons. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and he, he, in the book, because he's crying out for revival, which he calls the New Reformation. And then I'm guessing he was able to witness the Jesus movement 10 years later and see it as, wow, you know, maybe God is doing something. And all these all these uh, movements of God, it seems like they they sort of flutter out. They have to. Great awakening or something. They have to, otherwise the whole world would be converted. <laughs> I don't think that I don't think that slothfulness has always been through all of the church age her her main besetting sin. I don't think that's true because. Um, it took a lot of effort to survive until very recently. And, and part of my part of my sort of big picture, like, I don't know if thesis is the right word, but just big picture worldview is that the world really changed around the mid-1800s. And I think, I don't, I think we're living in a different eon than, than what was happening before then. It's what I call the time of the isms. Well, I mean, we can we can afford we can afford to be to be uh, look. I mean, everybody in this room is 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 wealthier than almost everybody who's ever lived in history ever. This is this is we're living in a different age than. Than the time of Christ, much less the time of Isaiah. Uh, so, so you know, I think our our struggle, which is the dark side of all of these blessings that we've been given, and it's really a grace that we have 
that we're not, you know, scraping for survival. That's a that's a blessing, but it comes with this dark side, which is this sort of uh, tendency to be complacent. Proverbs warns about this all over the place. So, uh, yeah. All right, verse 12. Still talking to the daughters of Jerusalem. Beat your breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, for the soil of my people growing up in thorns and briars. Yes, for all the joyous houses in the exultant city. For the palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted. The hill and the watchtower will become dens forever. A joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks, until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. So so the moment where things change is Pentecost. Donkeys tend according to the fathers. They saw the world differently than we do. Whenever donkeys show up, they say, that's the Gentiles. So it's talking about you know the wild donkeys, the land of the Gentiles, and it's there that the Spirit is poured from upon high. So well, as David is saying, yeah. too, I mean, this seems to be the remedy for our, the problem you're mentioning, too, is we need revival. We need an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace. And the result of righteousness will be quietness and trust forever. My people, God says, will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings and in quiet resting places. All right. I don't think that this, uh, this next verse is in its best form in the Masoretic. So I'll read it, and then I'll read the Septuagint version. And it will hail when the forest falls down and the city will be utterly laid low. It's just been talking about the city doing well. So, all right, let's read the Septuagint version. I'll backtrack, and then I'll read it all the way through. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. And though the hail should come down, it will not fall upon you. Happy are you who sow beside all the waters, who let the feet of the ox and the donkey range free. Yeah, you remember the ox and the donkey in chapter 1? The ox and the donkey know their master's manger. Manger. You know, there's always in, in every in every from the beginning of nativity art, we're talking like carvings on church buildings there's always been an ox and a donkey at the nativity yeah it's not in the gospels so where did that come from well it partly came from isaiah from the ox and the donkey knowing their master's manger but it also came from this understanding that at the nativity the jews and gentiles come together yeah now you can also say that the ox and the donkey are sort of two different types of christians Everybody's either an ox or a donkey. Uh, the donkey is the prodigal son, sort of the the uh, the fool, who uh, he's just he's he's uh, he's along on the right of grace, like he's floating down a river and can't really. I mean, he's just he's free in a bad he's, sense. Yeah, he's yeah, but but he's but he's but he's caught up in the grace of God. You know, he's he's uh, it's the prodigal son. You know, his, his, his daddy loves him. Yeah, there you go. Jesus loves me, this I know. That's the donkey. 
Isaac unto Jerusalem. Right. Well, then there's the ox. That's the older brother, who, who, uh, has walked with Christ his whole life. You know, from from the day that he could have memory. Where's and, my reward? And where, well, that's you know that's half of Christianity right there. And 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 I I, I personally feel like I'm the ox, and there's a warning on both sides. You know, because both are. Both are different types of walk with Christ, you know, and I, I think I think every Christian is either an ox or a donkey, but both are at the major. So there's the there's your warning for the ox: don't despise the donkey, and then for the donkey, don't despise the ox. Gotta have both of them. Yeah. Well, yeah. Armenian, the Calvinist, Jew and Gentile, poor and rich, shepherd and king, ox and donkey, they're all. All of equal standing at the manger. There's, so. a, there's a great book on uh, Christ in the Prodigal, written by a missionary who was in Syria for years by the name of Bailey. His last name is Bailey, and uh, he, he he says that it's not. He said we, we've got it all wrong because we say this is the parable of the prodigal son. He said it's the parable of the prodigal sons because the man had two sons. Yeah. Both of them, both of them are prodigal. Yeah, I, I'm always looked at the, the brother as not being a believer. He walked in his own words. Is it a question in the end of that whether he went into the feast or not? I don't think it says. It doesn't say. That's a that's a question Christ poses yeah, to the like year. Yeah, two thieves up on the cross with Jesus Christ. One just railed against him, but the other one, his heart melted. Yeah. And just like that, that's what God is looking for. It's the heart of that person. Yeah. There's a great scene in the movie, Jesus of Nazareth, that you've ever seen is one of the better films about Christ. And, uh, and where he, Jesus called Matthew, and he's at Matthew's home, and they're having. They're having supper together with all these other, all these other tax collectors and sinners, and the other disciples will not go in the house because they're good Jews. And so Peter is outside the house looking in the window, and there's a moment where Jesus is sharing this parable, and all of a sudden uh, Matthew and and uh, Peter make eye contact with each other, and they realize. It was a very intense moment. Not all that's true or not, but it's it makes it makes sense. You know, there's yeah. hope for the other brother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, there's definitely hope. Right. Well, the reconciliation that takes place. Yeah. Then I don't think there definitely has two levels. You know, we can condemn both brothers. We can be gracious toward both brothers. Well, and I've always, it's always been remarkable to me. God marked Cain so that nobody would kill him. It's almost as if, you know, like God says, there'll be no excuse in the end. He gave Cain an, an entire life, you know, to repent. But in First John, you hear him say that Cain was of his father, but death. Which brother do you think Cain was? Is he the prodigal? Is he the prodigal son brother, or is he the working hard brother? There's a place in there. Somebody drew this to my attention. 
prodigal son says, and he came to himself. He realized, you know, the fact that his father, his father's servants were far well, well more wealthy than he, and he came back. I'm trying to get it. I don't understand what you're If you understand the parable, he, the, the list of things that he comes up with to go back to his father with, he, ne he never has a chance to finish saying. You mean the brother? Yeah, the particle son that comes home. Oh, he's got all this long list of stuff. He's going to fall before he let me make me a servant. So he, he, he does. He, yeah. The father doesn't let him finish his sentence. Yeah, the father doesn't stand on the porch. He runs to his boy. God describes himself as falling on his son's neck. Isn't that sweet? Oh, yeah. That's what that's what Bailey points out in the book because what happens? He's a patriarch, and they they are special people. They never run anywhere. They only walk, and they have long robes on. They have no underwear, and when he runs, he has to pick up his robe and hold it up over his over himself. And so he's revealing his nakedness. And so, in a sense, he said, if in the society at that time, if an old man starts running down the road and revealing his nakedness, even the children can run behind him, making fun of him. You know, making yeah. make fun of him because he's advocating. Giving himself mm -hmm. over, he's surrendering himself to uh, to 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 the to mercy. Was Cain, was Cain the older brother, or was Cain the prodigal son? By birth, he's the older. Oh, the older brother, I would say. I don't think the parable has anything to do with Cain and Abel. No, that's my know. point. That's my point. That's <laughs> all. There's no connection at all. Zero connection. That's what I'm getting at. Well, I wasn't trying to say. That's my point. Is that the the murderous tendency of Cain is in the heart of both brothers. Sure. The prodigal son said he wished his father was dead. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. In this book, he writes it kind of as a play, and he had, or at the end of it, he has a play about this, and he has two endings. What are we talking about? This book, uh, the, the Across the Prodigal, it's an incredible book. Okay. But he ends. He has a play at the end with two alternative endings, and one of the endings, the father, the the, the older son, kills the father. Because he has the right to do it because his father has, has given himself over to bringing back this other son who's, been, who's, who's abandoned him, who's gone against the rules. The rules are, you know, when you divide, you can't, if you, if you want your, your division of the property before the father's dead, you're saying, I, I wish you were dead to the father. You're saying, I wish you were. So the, the, the young, the one that runs away says, at, at the beginning, he says, "I wish you were dead." And so, in a sense, that he, he then he realizes that was foolishness. The other son that, that won't go into the into the banquet, he's wishing his father was dead. And in, and in one of the alternative endings, he has him kill the father. So As the Jews kill Jesus. So we have. Uh... We're kind of at a crossroads here where we could go ahead and start the next chapter, but I think if we do that, it's going to be cut short too early. So I think let's just stop here and we'll start 33 next week because it's it's kind of a new section. Um, so we'll read chapter 33 next week. Thank you all.